0: Grit equals passion plus perseverance. And so they need to feel like the job that they're doing has meaning. So that's where clear, capable and aligned comes in. So really understanding the simpler that you can create your purpose in an organization, then the easier it is to resonate through the culture.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank
0: you, Jubin. Thank you for having me.
1: It's my pleasure. So I always start these things off the same way. I read my guests' backgrounds back to them. I apologize in advance. I'm going to ruin or screw up something. So when I inevitably do, just tell me, yell at me, and uh, we can go ahead and get it fixed.
0: All right, I don't think
1: I need to yell. All right, so you got your bachelor's in business and marketing from Swinburne University. Perfect. Okay, and then uh, your MBA from the Australian Graduate School of Management. You got your master's in applied positive psychology from the University of Melbourne. Then you went to Optus. You spent four years there on, it looks like graduate accountant and marketing executive. Not sure what that means, we'll talk about it. Then you went to IBM for 12 years. And you did eight years in the software division, marketing strategy, and biz dev. You did about four years in the demand programs and integrated marketing comm side for both Australia and New Zealand. Then, I actually have no idea what this is, six degrees executive. You were an associate director for three years there.
0: That was recruitment, search and recruitment.
1: Awesome. Okay. Then you actually went back to your alma mater as an advisor or a faculty board member You've been doing that now for a couple of years, if I'm not mistaken. And as of five years ago, you joined a company at the time that was probably pretty small called Zero in 2016. You started as the chief people officer. You did that for two years. Then you were the chief customer and people officer. You did that for a year. Then chief customer, people, and marketing officer for about a year. And now the chief customer officer, which I presume means people, marketing, and customer for a year and a half. what I screw up?
0: Well, <laughs> that was a very good introduction, Jubin. Thank you very much.
1: You don't have to flatter me. It's fine. I know I screwed it up pretty good.
0: No, no, you make me sound a lot better than I am. So that was perfect in terms of the education, except for I didn't do all of that education and then start working. Right. I actually did the Bachelor of Business, joined Optus as a graduate accountant, moved into marketing, then moved to IBM. When I was at IBM, I did the Masters of Business At University of New South Wales, which is the Australian Graduate School of Management, where the executive MBA is. And then after I left IBM, I did some consulting work with small businesses and startups and helped launch an online education business, amongst a few other things. And then I went into executive search and recruitment. And then I did my master's in positive psychology because I became really fascinated having worked with people in executive search, about what some of the best businesses were doing and how they were leveraging some of the insights and the science of positive psychology to create these incredible cultures. And that's when I came across Xero. And you're absolutely right. Started as the chief people officer and my portfolio grew. And we can talk a little bit about that because I'm very passionate about if you get it right on the inside, it resonates out through your partners and through the human ripple effect goes all the way to your customers. So took on the customer experience side of the business whilst I was still the chief people officer, took on marketing, took on communications. When I became the chief customer officer in its entirety, which meant that I took on all of the regions, all of the regions reported to me and took on global sales, I actually passed the reins of the people side of my portfolio off to my successor that I'd brought into the business and groomed to take over the, the people side. And that happened in October 2019. And we were 3000 employees by then. So it made sense that, you know, my portfolio was split and somebody was 100% working as the chief people officer and I was 100% working as the chief customer officer.
1: Ah, it feels like maybe you should have said your background, not me. (laughs) Does the chief people officer function still roll up to you or is it, does it go to somebody else? Okay.
0: No. So both of us report through to the CEO, the chief people officer looks after business partnering, rem and comp, organizational development and talent. And my remit spans everything in the customer journey from marketing, communications, digital transformation, sales, global sales through partner sales and direct sales and customer experience, customer support and customer success and education.
1: Got it. You know, I was literally giddy for this episode, mainly because we've had a lot of people on this show. We've had a lot of amazing sales executives on this show. No one has taken the path that you have. And as I prepared and read and listened to your perspective, it's really obvious it makes you uniquely effective in your role. So can't wait to dig into it. Before I do, could you give the audience maybe 30 seconds to a minute of what does Zero do in case they haven't heard of it?
0: Absolutely. So Zero is an incredible organization. I feel so fortunate every day to work there. So we're a cloud-based small business platform. So we actually started in New Zealand about 14, 15 years ago. And Rod Drury was our founder. And he started the business because he had this frustration that he and his accountant were looking at different sets of books at different times. So they'd upload one set of books. And then by the time the accountant got it, it was out of date. So he He was actually ahead of the curve and he launched this business that was born in the cloud, which meant that it was the first ever general ledger that both on the accountant side and the client side, they were looking at the same information at the same time. And I don't know if you can remember back 15 years ago, but I definitely can. I was at IBM at the time and we were trying to get this cloud concept off the ground. And there was a lot of people that were very skeptical about having their information kind of in the ether and how safe was that? But Rod stuck the path of the course and he launched this business. The tagline was Beautiful Accounting Software. And since then, it has evolved to be a beautiful business platform with a very clear purpose to improve the lives of people in small business, their advisors and their communities around the globe with a passion towards if we know that if we can improve the lives of people in small business and their communities in which they operate, then there's, their communities are going to be much richer in terms of... The resources that they've got available, the jobs that they provide to the communities. And then there's just going to be more opportunities for schools and hospitals and all of the things that need to be built to create flourishing communities across the globe. So we're about three and a half thousand employees now. We we're about 1,200 when I started five years ago. We have offices in the US, Canada, Asia, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa and the UK. So we now are on this journey to evolve our positioning and what we do to beautiful small business platform. And that means that we don't do everything ourselves. We have 900 ecosystem partners that plug into the Xero software and they all have bespoke applications, if you like, that different small businesses can use to run their business. So it might be time scheduling and attendance. It might be point of sale. It might be inventory products. And there's lots of other vertical type solutions that plug into our platform. So that's kind of zero in a nutshell.
1: Yep, fair enough. And there's things that you touched on on the like, how to organize a go to market that I can't wait to talk about before I do market cap for this company is 17 billion. Last I checked, revenue is I think around 300 million US Yeah. company is profitable God forbid, there's actually a profitable company that I talked to, by the way, for the audience, just to like level set on 300 million of revenue. That's about what Snowflake's doing right now. So anyway, pretty cool company that you've probably never heard of because the crazy thing about this business is that most of your market penetration is outside of the U.S. A lot of it is in where you are, New Zealand, Australia, et cetera. So plenty to talk about there. Random question. What's the first job you ever did?
0: Oh. The very first job, like a part-time job or the very first corporate job?
1: Very first ever job that you got a paycheck.
0: I did a chemist round. Do you know what that is? Mm-mm. No <laughs> idea. <laughs> I deliver drugs to people off on the back of my bicycle. So I'd go to the pharmacy and, yeah. you know, people would put their scripts in. And if they couldn't make it to the pharmacy to collect their scripts, I don't even know if this job exists anymore. And I would take all of the scripts and I'd ride my bike around. I was about 15 at the time. It's a bit like a paper round. It was called a chemist round. So it's delivering pharmaceutical drugs to the elderly or to the sick that couldn't get out and pick up their prescriptions.
1: Of course, that sounds amazing. We don't even have that now. Like years later, we're not even coming close to that.
0: It was like the Uber for pharmacy. You were so ahead
1: of the game. And, And Rachel, the reason I ask is because... What I've done a pretty good job of on the show is talking about this incredible rise and success of people like you. And even when I was listening to you, I was kind of transfixed like she's not human and i mean that as the highest form of compliment you're so articulate you've come from literally the broadest set of backgrounds that i've ever seen and you just nail it sometimes it's nice to remind ourselves of humble beginnings and i think i'm trying to do a better job of reminding our guests that we all kind of came from the same place through a similar set of circumstances
0: completely and i think that's one of the things that's kind of I am a naturally curious individual. I've got journalist genes running through my blood. My grandmother was an immigrant and she was the Australian correspondent for a German newspaper. So I've constantly and always kind of looked for how I can learn new things, which is why I've gone, yeah, I'll go from accounting to marketing. I'll go from marketing to strategy. I'll go from strategy to business development and channel management. And it's not been by design, it's just been out of natural curiosity and I think what that's meant is I've built this set of ambidextrous skills which has led me to the path that I'm on and my intuition has taken me through the journey that I've been on more than anything else.
1: Did you ever have a goal in mind as you were going through this? Like a lot of the time there's coaching for the younger generation of have a goal and figure out all the micro steps that you can take. The tactics can change, but the strategy should stay the same. Did you have that going through this thing? Like even specifically when you joined zero, was there an expectation from you or from the team that you were going to be running the revenue organization at some point?
0: No, no. I knew that my abilities and my experience led to more than what I was doing as the chief people officer. And to be honest, the chief people officer role for me when I was hired into that role was terrifying because I'd never been, you know, specifically in a HR role. But Rod Drury, the founder at the time, I remember being interviewed by him and I was talking him out of me. I'd come from recruitment and I'm like, are you crazy? Like you want me, a marketer and business development person to head up your people function? I said, you need somebody who's actually run HR across a global tech company. And he said, no, I need somebody who has got a marketing and strategy background because this is a, we're at the stage where we need to codify the strategy and we need to inspire and motivate a very fast-growing workforce you understand talent, you've just spent three years in talent, you're studying positive psychology, so you know the things, the interventions that need to be put in place to build a culture of inspiration and purpose. And, you know, I talked to him a lot about my philosophies on engagement, my philosophies on creating corporate wellbeing, how you can create cultures that just amplify out through the customer base. So he was clever enough to sort of say, no, I actually want something different. I don't want your traditional HR person And he did say to me in the interview process, he said, we have plenty of people with HR skills and experience in this company. There's 1,200 employees at the time. There was a HR director in every single region. He said, I want an executive that can sit at the executive table and work with the executive team on codifying the strategy and then campaigning that out through a very fast-growing workforce. And then it became evident within 12 months that we have this partner channel and our accountants and bookkeepers are our partners and they are the hero in our story because by working with them they can get to millions and millions of small businesses much faster than we can And so it became very evident that they are an extension of our family. So me looking after the people side of the business, it just became natural that I looked after, therefore, the customer side of the business, where a large portion of those customers were accountants and bookkeepers or our channel partners, even though we also have a proportion that come directly to us being the small businesses. So it's just been more of an evolution. There was always the concept and the idea that I had more to offer than what I was doing in the people role. But that was what was important at the time, given there was no one in that chief people role. And I really needed to focus on building that first.
1: You mentioned trying to talk him out of the job. Why? Was it insecurity? Like, did you feel like, look, I'm not qualified? What were you saying to him? What was going through your head at the time that you, you sold yourself the story that you don't belong in that job?
0: Well, I was actually, at the time, I was in three different processes for three different companies, and they were all very different roles. One of them was with a, with a large consulting company in a strategy role. One of the other jobs was back in telecommunications, not with Optus, who I'd started my career with, but with the number one player here in a director of growth role, looking at how we could accelerate their consumer product offerings. And then there was Zero, And 0 wasn't a really well-known brand name, but I kind of knew about them because of my time at IBM, I'd been in the ISV program and, and there were companies like Xero, accounting software companies that I'd looked after. So in the interview process, I suppose I was more naturally curious as to why Rod, and I'd been introduced to him and we were just having a chat the first time and then it became more of a serious interview. He's very convincing and he's very convicted in what he knows. And he's actually quite brilliant because he's thinking two or three steps ahead of other people. So it was definitely the imposter syndrome playing out. It was definitely, I was thinking, wow, this is, this is an amazing opportunity for somebody to build something. And what I've learned about myself, particularly in the last five years, is I'm definitely a change agent. I'm a builder. I'm not a hold the reins and steady as you go. I think that I would get bored doing that. So I'm definitely a builder. I'm definitely a creator and I remember talking to my husband and I was just turning myself in knots about these opportunities and what was I going to do next. I had three small children. I was thinking one of these roles is a global role. I'm going to be away from home a lot, but it's the thing that really inspires me and gives me the fire in the belly because it was all about molding the people side of the business. And because I was studying positive psychology at the time, and I was really passionate about what an impact people can make on organizations, having worked with hundreds of organisations in my time in search and recruitment, I knew what the best organisations did and they looked in unusual places for skills and talent. They didn't kind of tick boxes and say this person's done that, so let's put them there. So Rod was definitely singing the same song that I believed in, but it was the probably the imposter syndrome that thought I could take a much safer path here. Anyway, long story short, I spoke to my husband and he said to me, Rachel, This is not a life sentence. Whatever decision you make will be the right decision. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the decision forever, but you're just going to have to jump. You're just going to have to trust your gut and jump. And I looked inward and I thought, which one feels right? And it was zero. And I have not looked back.
1: Incredible. This gives me a lot of Atlassian vibes. Do you know the folks there? And maybe, yeah, like the CRO who was on my show, Cameron Dietsch, He has like a pretty similar story. I don't know if you guys are just better in thinking creatively about characteristics and qualities that might be successful in a role, but he did eight different jobs before he ended up being the CRO. He did BD, all sorts of things. Anyway, there's a lot of resemblances. You said something. I think you used the words fire in my belly. What does that feel like? Because a lot of people, especially in sales, the show often comes back to talent and figuring out who the right talent is, what the right opportunity is. And I often try, at least in my interviews, to figure out, like, what are the logs that burn your fire? What does that feel like for you?
0: Oh, that's easy to articulate. I never, ever, ever, ever want to pull the doona over my head and stay in. Do you call it a doona in in the U.S.? A duvet? Sheets.
1: Yeah, sheets. Yeah, yeah.
0: I never, ever want to stay in bed in the morning. I am so excited about what I have to do during the day. This is absolutely a vocation for me. It does not feel like work. Before COVID, I travelled a lot, probably overseas twice a month, somewhere in the world. And I love my family and I love my children, but I also love the people that I get to work with every day. So it isn't a drag. I love what I do. I feel completely invested in our purpose. I feel invested in the career paths and the opportunities for all of the people that we bring into this business and to make sure that they can play to their strengths and achieve their personal aspirations whilst we achieve the company's goals and purpose. So, I mean, I worked at IBM for 12 years and I worked at other companies, as you've seen in my resume. And I can tell you, I've I've never felt this overwhelming commitment to, like, I feel like I'm at home. I feel like I've got my tribe around me and I'm talking about the people that I work with, but also the customer's, that I get to serve every day. And it's in a, in an environment where our values are so aligned with my personal values of human and challenge and teamwork and beautiful, like everything we do is making sure that the customer experience is exceptional and outrageously good. So, I mean, I get so excited even talking about it. It's, it's 7.30 in the morning here. Most days my days start somewhere between 7 and 8. And it's not a chore for me. I love it.
1: So before this conversation, I listened to hours of you talking about zero, how you got there. I've read all sorts of documentation and I took down notes. The first was that this doesn't sound like a job to you. Like it was so obvious you could hear it. I literally wrote down, does not feel like a job. The second, this is perfectly suited to you how many opportunities are there in New Zealand for companies like this? Not very many. And the idea that you were you know, in the process of getting your master's in applied positive psychology while this was going on, it seemed too coincidental. So anyway, I'm uh, not surprised to be hearing any of the things that you're saying. So you've said it twice or three times now, I've got a lot more to give. And often I feel like when I'm the most challenged, when there's new roles and responsibilities that are out ahead of what I think I'm comfortable with, that's when I bring my A-game. That's when I bring everything I have. That's where often I think people are at their peak execution is when they're out a little bit ahead of where they want to be. Correct. How do you ask for more without feeling like you're asking for more? How do you balance that tightrope of like, all right, you're the chief people officer. And are you calling the CEO every day? Hey, you know I have more to give. I want to give more. (laughs) No. This like innate hunger in you to do more and this confidence, in ability. how do you push the organization while making sure that you're also, they know that you're focused on the role? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, completely. So I don't think it's about asking. I think it's about showing. I will always make the right decision for what is right for zero first and foremost, before any people. I think of zero as the soul, if you like, and we are all here to serve that soul. And so being the chief people officer, and you can imagine the amount of org changes and operating models and things that I'd worked through, and I was always looking through the lens of, and I still do, I still, you know, think about this in terms of what I think is best for the organisation. I'm not an empire builder, and I don't think it's about asking for what more you want. It's more about showing what you're capable of, and those results will just come, I've never felt like I've lobbied for any part of my remit. It's just naturally evolved because it's become obvious that that's where that part of the organisation should sit. And that's, you know, whether I talk about me or whether I talk about some of my peers and their portfolios as well, this all comes back to the principles of positive psychology and strengths-based leadership. If you really get to know the people around you, it becomes obvious who should be looking after what part. of the business because you want people to play to their strengths. And I do have confidence, I suppose, but I've had to learn to build that confidence and believe Mm -hmm. in myself. And, you know, I also follow the mantra when things aren't going well, that you get what you put up with. And my mum taught me that very early in life. So don't be intimidated by anyone. And, The only person that can be intimidated by anyone is you. You can let that happen. So you get what you put up with. So if there's something that's not right in any relationship, whether it's a personal relationship or a professional relationship, then have the courage to have the conversation about how that's affecting you. And then in terms of taking on more, just do the right thing and show what you're capable of and the rewards will come. So don't ask, show. And really make sure that you're having the courage to have the conversations that are often the hard conversations that people don't want to have.
1: Oh, you're so the CEO of this company. Oh, my (laughs) God. So, okay, that's a really nice transition point because I think, A, you have to do the work and you have to be excellent in your job, but there's also a structure around you that needs to enable you to go to where you want to be. One is that the organization has to be growing, right? So zero was growing like crazy. Growth means that there's going to be upward mobility, and then upward mobility means that the organization has to believe in like a promotion from within. It has to want to invest in its people. It has to want to put people out ahead of their skis. It has to be growing so that there's other jobs above you that become bigger jobs, right? So you've talked a lot about building unique relationships with customers by having unique relationships with employees. I've heard you talk a lot about your employees. I actually think of it kind of as a juxtaposition to like an Amazon culture that talks a lot about their customers. You and the zero team feels like you have a bit of a different perspective towards it or maybe a different sequence of how you service your customer. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what you mean by that?
0: So first of all, I'll say that we are very clear at zero that our priority and this is controversial because when you know you do your master's business and you do your study, it's all about you know return for the shareholder. Shareholder above everything else, but at zero we focus on people our zeros first, our customers second, and shareholders third in that order, because we know that if we've got our population of zeros passionate and I tell you I wish Jubin you could come and spend a couple of days with us because there is not one zero you will meet, and we test a lot for this like Atlassian does on the way in to make sure that the people that are coming into zero they want to be part of our story, they want to be part of the journey. So, if you look after them first and you make it really clear to them what the company purpose is and you get them playing to their strengths, then they're going to be energised and they're going to be excited about what they do every day. Now, that is contagious. And once they're dealing with the customers, so whether it's our channel partners, our accountants and bookkeepers, our financial services partners, our ecosystem partners, you just multiply that enthusiasm by, you know, 10x in the partner channel and then that resonates out through to our customers. So that's what I call the human ripple effect and we talk a lot about that inside-out culture. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say about this topic is we made a deliberate choice to put all of the elements of the customer journey for both our partner and our small business customer under one executive. And thank God we did because once COVID hit, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that at some point, The decisions we needed to make to support our customers needed to be made really quickly. So, what were we going to do to set up a customer response team? How were we going to spin up the business continuity hub? We launched the XSBI program, which was the Zero Small Business Insights program, to get data off our platform so that we could advise governments on what was happening in the small business economy so that they could put stimulus packages in place in the right places. So there's a plethora of things that we did, even on on the inside, like setting up our salespeople to work from home and how we could make sure that they could work productively but take the pressure off them in terms of revenue targets. So all of that and that deliberate choice of putting the customer journey all under one executive was a unique decision. And there are a couple of companies that are heading this way. And I think we're going to see more chief customer officer roles that have the end-to-end customer journey and revenue management under one leader. But I think that that has amplified this inside-out philosophy and approach that we've been able to take, and particularly in crisis times like COVID.
1: So a couple points on what you just said. The first is that you, similar to Atlassian, test for the qualities of what a good employee looks like at zero. making sure that they're a cultural match, making sure that they really want to be there. And I, I'm i definitely going to come visit and I will spend two days with you all because I can't wait to see what this is all about. What are you testing for? Like, what are the kinds of questions that you are asking to identify if that person's a great fit?
0: We've set up a process with in talent where it's a conversation. It's not an inspection. And having worked in recruitment and executive search... And you've probably experienced this too where you go into an interview and and somebody's asking you a list of behavioural-based interview questions that you know are so scripted and then you're kind of trying to think of the smartest answer or the best answer and you're not really being authentic in the interview and it's all pre-rehearsed and what we do is we have a conversation with the person. We want to know who they are. We want to know what they're passionate about. Uh, A lot of our employees have had some sort of relationship with small business. So they've either grown up in a family that's run a small business, they've had a small business themselves, or they've got friends in small business and they know the challenges. So having that empathy for the customer is really important. And then we also make sure that when we're talking about the actual role We're trying to explore what are the strengths of the individual rather than have they done that before. And I'm a perfect example of that. Like not having done a HR director, global HR director role before wasn't what Rod was exploring with me. He was exploring what were my strengths and were those strengths conducive to what he needed that leader to do at that time of the company's journey So it's more about having that conversation and it's got to be a two-way interaction. It can't be an inspection. And then it's about making sure that the candidate has just as much time to ask questions about the business.
1: So you're not asking your salespeople like what percentage of quota did you attain at your previous job? No. So when you think about identifying a candidate's strengths, what kind of questions do you ask in order to take the path of least resistance to identify them?
0: Things like when are you at your best, Jubin? So when are you in flow? What are you doing when you're feeling like time is passing so quickly, you're not watching the clock, where you're excited, where you get this sense of energy that even when you're tired, you can keep going? What are the sorts of things that you're doing? And you might say to me, I love journaling, I love writing, I love creating stories. And that's the answer that you would expect when you're you know, interviewing somebody in a content role or a comms role? Like, what is it that you do you like working alone? Do you like working with people? And then from a sales perspective, it would be, tell me about a time where you've had a real challenge and you've been able to overcome it in dealing with customers and tell me how you felt when you went through that. So you're trying to pick up the correlation between the activity and the emotion. And you can see in people's body language, they get really excited and they lean forward and they're Voice pitch rises when they're talking about things that excite them. That's what you're looking for. And then you're making sure that those are the skills and the traits that you need in the job that you're interviewing them for.
1: So you find the right person. You also do a lot around development of those people. And one of the things that I specifically heard you say was that you talk to your employees in helping them find grit. And you said it in passing. It wasn't a point that you were making, but they used the word grit, which was a signal to me that I wanted to talk to you about it. How do you develop grit in an employee?
0: Well, it's got to start with making sure that they're playing to their strengths. Grit equals passion plus perseverance. And so they need to feel like the job that they're doing has meaning. So that's where clear, capable and aligned comes in. So really understanding The simpler that you can create your purpose in an organisation, then the easier it is to resonate through the culture. So clarity on purpose and the meaning in terms of the role that they're playing and the association between that and the purpose is really important for engagement. So that creates that passion because you've got the right people playing to their strengths in the right role, that they're energised, they're feeling like they're making a difference. We know that this generation puts meaning and purpose above pay above benefits like they want to come to work every day and feel like they're making a difference and then the perseverance side is really important particularly when you go through adversity and god knows that we've had significant adversity with a, a once in a 100 year pandemic and that perseverance is only going to happen in an organization that has a strong foundation of well-being like if you think about positive psychology as a spectrum Typical psychology just looks at trying to bring everyone to zero. So if the spectrum goes from minus 10 to 10, psychologists kind of aim to try and get everybody just kind of operating, functioning at normal levels. And then when they go into the negative zone, they work on interventions to lift them out of anxiety and depression and everything that comes with the deficit end of the psychology spectrum. Positive psychology, tries to lift the average beyond zero. So the whole population to two or three or four, so that when we go through adversity and everybody's working from home and they're doing 14 hours a day on Zoom calls or 12 hours a day, they're trying to engage with customers remotely, that gets you down. That's tiring. That's exhausting. But if you've got a little bit more fuel in your tank and you're not sitting at zero, you're not just functioning, but you're at that flourishing end of the spectrum, then if you do sort of Go down the spectrum, you're only going to go to two or back to zero, but not into that negative landscape. And that is what I mean about the perseverance. That's the grit. So if you can lift the well being and the culture in the organization for the whole population to operate between functioning and flourishing, not just at functioning and definitely not at languishing, then you've got that perseverance embedded or that resilience embedded in the DNA, which means that when you hit adversity, there's enough there to keep people going. And we've absolutely seen that in the last 12 months at zero.
1: You've talked about authenticity. And what you say in the context of authenticity is that you want to create an environment where people can be themselves, their authentic selves. Because as soon as you stop trying to pretend to be someone else or something else at the workplace, then what you're really focused on is moving the ball forward and doing good work. Exactly. Before you hire someone, do you try and uncover what authentic looks like and make sure that authentic self knows that they have permission to be themselves when they get there? Is it once they're there, you put in leading tells that are signals for the organization that it's okay to be you? What are the things that you can do? Measures, benchmarks that tell the newest employee at zero, that they are allowed to be themselves, whether that's Republican, liberal, conservative, gay, straight, whatever that might be, yeah. how can you do that?
0: From our perspective, it doesn't matter. Like it's not what's important in terms of who you vote for or what your sexual preference is or what religion you are. It's more about the human being that sits behind that when I was a chief people officer, we didn't have anyone focused on diversity and inclusion. So there was three key roles that I probably hired. We had traditional business partnering and all of that, but we didn't have internal comms. And that was really important to me. Communication. Like if you're going to try and bring a whole population of people on a journey, you need internal comms. So that was one of the first functions that I set up under PX that now sits in my world under communications, internal comms, but it's very closely aligned to PX people experience. The other role that I brought in was somebody who I called the Tinder of zero. I said, I want you to help me find good people, even if we don't have jobs. <laughs> and she's a legend. She's been with us since I've been there for five years. I want
1: that job. That sounds amazing. She's amazing,
0: And she could talk to people for 12 months, like senior executives. She, so she does executive search. We don't outsource that. We might, you know, use some agencies to do some particular jobs for us, but she is doing succession planning with the executive team all the time. So she will be talking to people all the time from EGM level and above up to executives. And by the time there's a job, these people are so in love with zero because she's dated them for however long, keeping them ahead of the strategy, telling them what's going on in the business that like they're in. We don't start the process then, we're closing the process then. So that was the second role. And the third role, which relates to what we're talking about now, is diversity and inclusion. So I brought in somebody who helped me form the diversity and inclusion strategy. What were the principles behind that? We over-indexed in that strategy on the inclusion side because we want people to be their authentic self. Because what I learned in studying positive psychology, that is if people can be who they are, and I saw this in many companies working in search too, And as you said, Jubin, the discretionary effort that goes to trying to be a chameleon, trying to be who they think they should be, goes away. And that discretionary effort gets used on being productive and playing to their strengths to move the business forward. So there's not one thing that you do. There's a plethora of things that you need to do in an organization to show that authenticity. One of the things is it's got to start with leaders being vulnerable. Last night, I spoke I was on a all hands with the sales team in the UK and they were asking me some pretty personal questions about how I got through COVID, what were some of the challenges that I personally faced, how do I manage my health and my family and those sorts of things. And I was telling them the good, bad and the ugly that went with that. Like, it, So if people see the leaders behaving that way and our CEO is very good at that too and our chairman and our board directors, then it gives permission to, for everybody else to kind of realise that they can be themselves too. Another example that we did is we put a respect and responsibility policy in place and we made sure everybody signed it. There's a whole lot in there, but it's about just being a good person and making sure that you're not forcing your personal opinions on other people, but you're actually taking the time to respect that other people have different opinions and that's okay. We can all work collaboratively together, having different political opinions or different opinions on religion or even different opinions on strategy, but it's about how we are respectful of each other's opinions. We also changed sick leave to wellbeing leave. That was another thing that we did, again, in the world of where you want to be authentic. I had a belief that if you just needed a day out for mental health, why is that not the same as just having to have a day out because you've got, you know, a stomach flu? Like Let's give our people, let's treat them like adults. And if they want to be here, you know, then we welcome them. But if they need a day out, then why chain them to a desk? So call it wellbeing leave and it can be for physical health, mental health, or just when you need a day to kind of get your head above water. There's a whole plethora of things that we've put in place that help create this environment where people can be themselves.
1: Okay. And then dovetailing into that thought, you talk about innovation or you've said the word. And what strikes me listening to you is that like you're innovating in real time. And the danger of innovation is you are putting your neck out there, like even calling things well-being leave, right? You're doing all of these unique things that no one's ever really done before. In your priority stack, you're going on my podcast and telling me that your employee, not the customer, is number one priority. Like that is the antithesis of how most businesses operate. And you're putting yourself out there. Like that is the true notion of like bleeding edge innovation. Yeah. It's risky. And someone asked you about one of your regrets or one of the things that you wish you could change about zero. And your answer was that you you wish you could give more room for play. And I almost equated play to innovation where you give people the space that they need in order for them to go innovate, whether that space is at home because they're meditating or taking care of their kids or doing the laundry, whether they're sick, or whether that space is in the workplace where you know Google's rule like 20% of their, their work is not actually work, it's just doing other things that are passion projects for them. If you're a sales rep and you carry a quota, what does play look like? How do you innovate as a salesperson?
0: Oh, that is a great question, Jubin. First of all, I absolutely think that you need to put play into an organisation if you're going to innovate and you also need to make sure that there are no consequences for getting things wrong and I'm very passionate about that. Like if you're not getting things wrong, you're not innovating because innovation means that there's going to be times where it pays off significantly and there's going to be times that it's not. So we do things like have performance goals and learning goals and there are no consequences for not getting anything right in the learning goal. It's just do something you've not done before. Try a different path, build a different neural pathway in your brain because that fosters growth mindset, which is what you want a culture to have if you want to have an innovative culture. But to answer your specific question about what play looks like for salespeople, I wouldn't say that we're a very salesy metric-based performance quota organization. I've absolutely worked in organizations where there's leaderboards and it's very public about who's the top of the leaderboard and it's written and everybody just becomes so myopic on the dollar. And once you ch- start chasing the dollar, you lose the connection to purpose. So we spend a lot more time talking about how we can best support our customers. And it's not just sales, it's CX2. So we have over 450 customer experience advisors that are supporting accountants, bookkeepers and small business customers to help educate them, to help them get the best utilization of the platform. So what play looks like in those sorts of roles is you do whatever you think is best for your customer. So we've had examples where salespeople have actually gone and left the office and worked for a day or two days in an accounting and bookkeeping firm helping get their small business customers off one platform to another platform, like sitting with them and actually talking them about the product and helping them do the data conversion and working their way through it. We've had CX, so our customer experience advisors, go overboard in terms of delighting our customers. A couple of examples I can think of, Wellington can be a a wintry and windy place and I remember one time there was a customer experience advisor that was talking to a a customer who was, you know, really stressed out, a small business customer or they might have been an accountant They were trying to get something done on the Xero platform and and they needed some assistance so they raised a case and we always have the right person ring them back so they don't get passed around from pillar to post who can actually help them with their specific need. And this customer said that they were freezing and they'd die for some hot chips. So this customer experience advisor ordered some hot chips and sent it to their office. So, you know, we have the what's called this delight program and we empower our people to do whatever they think they can do to delight and go an extra step for our customers. We've had accountants and bookkeepers that we know have been injured or sick and had to go to hospital and we help them find another accountant or bookkeeper that can look after their customers while they're out of action. We've even had examples where customers need to know the score of some sort of sporting game and the person that's talking to them will look it up for them and then, you know, give them updates on how that score is going for the game that they're interested in. Because social media is just such a huge platform these days that they will then post, oh my God, look what Zero just sent me. Like a, you know, customer had a baby and we sent a care pack with nappies and a little Zero onesie that, you know, the baby could be put in and and they, they send that out because they're just so touched that we care enough to listen to what's going on in their whole world, not just about the product. So yeah, there's a couple of examples there that just give how we, we just empower our people to do the right thing.
1: Yeah, I love that. You have around 2.4, 2.5 million subscribers as of recording today. Mm-hmm. 250,000 of those are in North America. Mm-hmm. That's obviously an opportunity. Right, huge. I also started asking myself why, and as I started digging in a little bit more into the archives of Zero, I'm not challenging you, but I more just want your opinion on this. Like people have said that Zero has struggled selling into non English speaking
0: markets. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, Zero has struggled competing against really deep pocketed American based companies like QuickBooks, which is I think into it. How do you Take a company from the southern hemisphere and move it here, organized around a small business go to market with two million plus customers with a channel whose accountants and bookkeepers competing against these really deep pocketed organizations that have seen you build a 17 billion dollar organization within like not America, which, again, doesn't happen. So they obviously see that and that's a tell to them like, hey, protect our turf here. How do you think about earning the business of more customers here, competing against those types of customers? What do you think you could have done differently and and what are you looking forward to doing more of?
0: Well, first of all, I'll say the market's huge there. (laughs) So there's definitely enough room for Intuit and Zero to play. I think that our unique differentiator is that we do strongly consider the advisor channel, the accountants and bookkeepers as part of our story. And I think Intuit, they don't have that same sort of philosophy. So, I think that there is a one-to-one to many approach that we can take because we will always sell direct to the end user as well. But we know that small businesses are more likely to be in business in five years if they're connected to an advisor. So, we encourage small businesses to be connected to advisors We have big plans for the US, and I think that there is an opportunity for us over the course of the next decade to really be a formidable force in in the US. Like, we've got so much more headroom to grow there, and we're working very hard on making sure that we can build fast the products that are going to be most valuable to the customers there. We also know that in most countries, people want competition because it lifts the bar for the whole category. So, if there's not competition, then there's complacency. So there are a lot of customers that actually want choice. They want to know that Xero are going to continue to develop the products and the offerings that they need in their market. And we've seen that absolutely in Canada. So there's a strategy that's in place that we're executing at the moment. We're very doubled down on verticals. We're very doubled down on making sure that we're very focused on the customers that we want to serve because it's very difficult in a market as big as the US to be all things to all people. So let's under-promise and over-deliver to the customer base that we're targeting. And the other thing, going back to what you said about we put people first, we have some of our best people in the US market for this reason, because it is an enormous opportunity. And I think you'll see the revenue percentage shift significantly to the Northern Hemisphere. Like we're seeing the UK is taking off significantly for us. And COVID has just accelerated this adoption to cloud. So there's a lot more customers that are even interested in looking at a digital platform.
1: The other question that I had for you, and this might have preceded you, but one of the things that we see within the Kleiner portfolio is that you often start in the SMB mid-market world and then go up market. Because once you've earned the hearts and minds of the SMB customers, then you can continue to go up market because, you know, from our perspective, and oftentimes is the case, There's more predictability around larger customers, right? You can do the million-dollar deal. There's less churn. There's more of a moat to the business. You didn't do that. And you probably had a decision to do that at some point. Were you there when you had that decision? And I love that you didn't do that. Again, of course you didn't do that. Nothing that you guys have done is typical. You just doubled down on your core audience. You never went up market. Kind of risky.
0: Yeah, kind of risky. But like if you think about it, at the other end of the spectrum, like the small business economy is the most underserved end of the economy. It's why some of these big technology companies haven't operated there. They've gone, like you said, up mid-market and up to the enterprise level. They've got those big bluebird deals that have massive probably peaks and troughs in terms of their revenue curve. Our philosophy is just slow and steady wins the race. Like, you know, if you build that foundation and you build that run rate business when you're in a SaaS company, you're winning that revenue every month, right? But you have to work for it every month because it's very easy in a subscription-based business for people to actually move from one platform to another. The first thing we wanted to do was make sure that we were serving the underserved end of the market, the small business end of the market. And in doing so... It's not been an overnight success, but it's meant that we now have a very strong foundation of small businesses across the globe that believe in zero, that are part of this zero movement. Like it's an infectious culture on the inside and it's an infectious product. It's a beautiful product. And we have so many ambassadors. And we know that if we can continue to serve that end of the market that is so underserved, then we are just going to have that momentum and that amplification effect that I talk about. And that is what we aspire to do. And we know that we are better doing that with accountants and bookkeepers, which is what I think our unique differentiator is as a business. And we will always make sure that we're doing the right thing by accountants and bookkeepers because they are really the hero in our story. They are the ones that are helping us reach the millions of small businesses across the globe.
1: Look, it looks like there's some light at the end of the tunnel for this COVID thing. As soon as it's over, promise me that you will host me and I get to spend some time with you at the Zero offices and I can figure out what the hell is in the water there because it's unbelievable. Deal?
0: I would love you to come down to the Southern Hemisphere and we can do a bit of a road trip to New Zealand and through Australia and and they'll come back up to the Northern Hemisphere when we can travel and I can show you our Denver office in Canada and I think you'd love it.
1: I love it. I can't wait. There's so much for us to learn from what you're doing. And so, thank you for that. And I'm sure the audience would say the same. All right, let's wrap this thing. I always ask the same questions at the end. Number one, what does the word grit mean to you, and how do you or your teams apply it?
0: So, having studied positive psychology and Angela Duckworth and the master of grit, Passion and perseverance is what grit means to me. So it's the combination of both. If you have passion and you don't have the resilience and the perseverance, when the going gets tough, you can't keep going. If you've got the perseverance but not with something that you're passionate about, it becomes a chore and a grind. So it's about making sure that you bring the right people into the team, get them playing to their strengths, ensure that they're really clear on the purpose of the organisation and then unleash them to actually empower themselves to work out how to get the job done. So that's what it means to me.
1: Great answer. Are you hiring? Where are you hiring? And what's the best way to get a hold of you?
0: We are definitely hiring. We hired all the way through last year too. We've got so many people that have joined our company have not ever even seen a, a zero face-to-face. The best way to get in touch is to actually look at our website zero.com there's the careers page on that as well so you'll be able to and there's actually some really good cool stories and videos of our zeros and and showing them being their authentic self and showing their passions outside of the work too so go check that out
1: rachel thank you for your time
0: you're welcome jubin it was such a lovely chat i really appreciate it
1: That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.